Hi, and welcome to the Deep End Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Alex Lasku, and I'm here to share the stories of coaches who are in the deep end, wayfinding through their learning journeys to support the development of others. One thing I did definitely want to cover in this was your session plan thought. So can you run us through how that came to be? And then of course, like what you learned until you sent me. Last night. Yeah. Yeah. So I was really thinking that going through the licenses and a lot of coach education there, sessions usually start off with a topic, let's say, for example, creating scoring opportunities in the final third. And that's brought about in a passing practice at the start, um, possession during the uh, middle, and then game at the end. Whereas in a couple of other different environments, it's not, it doesn't come across as that intentional where it seems a little bit more sporadic where you might have one or two technical uh, sessions, drills, and then in the game at the end, uh, whereas a large, larger side, 7v7, uh, 8v8, that sort of thing, that's when you cover the tactical stuff. And that's when, I guess... Coaches are more intentional about what they want to see on the weekends. So it's less part home. Yeah. I guess we're told to make inception plans. Yeah. It's almost like a thread during an activity. And so the activity is focusing on this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, and I was speaking to one of the coaches this morning, this morning about it too. And um, she said it was, it was really just dependent on the coach. Like you'll have some coaches who are very sporadic in their approach. Yeah. Um, they, they know that they cover a lot of different topics because the game is chaotic. Yeah. Um, so we, we can, we can cover things as they emerge. And then you've got the other, other side who are very planned, very detailed and want to do things in a structured manner. And it looks very pretty. So, especially the session plans, there's a lot of detail to them. I was explaining your session plans to Renjo yesterday. I was like, down to the minute, coaching points all planned out and making you up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I remember all the times throughout this year where I had a session plan. I didn't refer back to it once whilst the soul was out there. So I did all the all the work and all the things that I might cover, yeah. and then I never picked it out of my pocket when I was actually doing it. <laughs> Nothing to do with the timings or anything. I might might look at my phone and see how how much time we're covering. Yeah. Um, do I need to keep on going with this drill? They seem to be enjoying it. Uh, maybe I can afford to keep this going for another five five minutes. Or uh, on the other side, we need to wrap things up quickly. Yeah. They're, they're done. <laughs> so it wasn't as fine tooth and detailed as what the uh, session plan originally had. Yeah. Do you think we're wasting our time planning sessions then? Like to the detail that we often see, like the, I need to do this activity. And I don't know, some people even do like the equipment that they need for that activity, the coaching points, timings, everything. Like, is that a waste of time? I always, is, I think it depends on your context too. And if, because if you, you're in an environment where you've got a limited time, let's say you're, you've got a team that's before you and you've got a team that's after you and you've only got, let's say, an hour and 15 minutes, 
because on the hour and 20th minute, you've got the next team on. Yeah. Then you probably need to be a little bit more structured in in your approach. Um, just trying to think about other sort of situations there. Um, I know in performance environments too, um, that's where that's where I learned that time, timing is very important. Um, just so that you, they, we can cover all bases um, and we can we can review it and say we've covered what we were meant to cover in the times that we had, and because players come in before they've got they have gym yeah. in performance environments they've got come in gym prehab on fields at a certain time off field at a certain time straight into gym yeah. and because they got work outside of that. We almost need to be very time efficient, yeah. whereas probably in in more club environments you can you can afford to go ten fifteen minutes extra, um, and all that. So, yeah, and I guess the timing of the activities in high performance too, like your prehab can't be too far away from when you take the field because then that yeah. completely undermines why you did it in the first place. Thing with the gym, like yeah, there's a reason they do on field training and then gym is to actually prepare the body for the, the workout loads that they're going to have. Yeah. In other contexts, so like that's fair enough. Like, Have you seen this sort of similar in cricket? With gym work? With um with timings being very structured so Yeah. When they started professionalizing women's cricket, they had lockout hours as well, so that people could actually go to work. So yeah. you had to be like you had to be out by ten. You weren't technically allowed to be on site at ten o'clock. So you could force people to go to uni or do other things so that they weren't completely reliant on cricket, which didn't yeah. work. The people who could live off their cricket contracts, technically weren't even allowed to be on the site. Mess. Um, even if they just wanted to like access the pool, do some laps or something, like they technically weren't allowed to do that. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I think the timing wise, like there's definitely a structure around how we want to sequence events in a high performance system. Yeah. But for everybody else, it's free reign. Like it's yes. and my, I, mean, I don't know about you, but we I would always rock up for the earliest possible training. On a Tuesday, Thursday, I would train from 4.30 to bloody 8.30 p.m. Bowl a stupid amount of balls to anyone who was willing to stand the other end of the net of me and then go home. Like, and it was like essentially childcare. Like, Dad would just drop us off at 4.30. He'd be like, yeah. see, you, see you when it's past dark and we're catching tennis balls by moonlight. Like, you want to get as much out of it as you, as you can. Absolutely. Twice a week and then play two matches on a week. Yeah. <laughs> and co- coaches are getting better in designing activities before the session starts yeah um just so that players are just hang, hanging around and doing let's say mindless shooting or something like that yeah they're actually coming in they've got a game set up and they're doing 1v1s or ta- tall-sided games before they even get to it get to the training session so yeah it's just another way you get i guess you get extra touches in um which is a bit more fun football tennis is another a good starting <laughs> Another good starting point that I've used a lot, and yeah. kids get around it. Yeah. I, well, players get around it. They love it, not just kids. We played Ted Ball like too many yeah. times and stuff like that. And pretty much every sport I played, once once someone saw it the first time, literally every sport I played was like let's play Ted Ball. Yeah, this was like some slight variation of yeah. it. But like we do it in cricket class all the time. We have engagement square. Yeah. And someone said to me the other day, they're like, "Why do we take the most boring parts of cricket?" and force it on kids who graduate from the funnest version of cricket, which is cricket last. I was like, yeah. exactly. Why did I get an engagement square as an adult? I want to go in and take like stupid challenge catches and stuff like that. Like it'd be so much more fun if we actually had things set up or like points that you can like 
step off the whiteboard 50 points if you take you know 100 catches left-handed and stuff like that and just accumulate it like oh, i've really done that and what you'll probably you'll find too is that by by the end of it the coaches will, like, will end up joining joining in tech ball and and that too so yeah and then we're like oh hang on we gotta start a session here <laughs> <laughs> I see the timing thing is always best with me because I always thought it was more important whatever people need in that moment yeah. should probably trump whatever you thought they needed unless it, it's like mucking around or you're not quite like using the time effectively to better their environment or their skills in that environment. Like if you're just playing stupid for an hour, that's not a training session. But if you play stupid for 15 minutes because people need the break and the space to just play silly and then you transfer that into a slightly more serious environment, feel like that you're going with the flow then instead of just trying to force a session plan up. That's it. And a lot of times with play, players too, they've come come from school and they're being being dropped off straight from school sort of thing. And you, they're a little bit, I guess, not ratty, but they want to get out there. They, they don't want to line up um, before and for, for pre-art. Um, they want to get out of there. They want to shoot a ball. Um, they want to have a kick, a kick about. And so I think it's just sensible for coaches to set something up that, that will support that. Not but being in mind too, there's got to be, there's, there needs to be intention behind it. Like you said, you can't just be mindlessly shooting, for, for example. Yeah. Because again, I feel like that's, that'd be a waste of time. Mm. Um, so we whether you grab grab a mate, grab a mate and do, do some one v ones and then shoot, um, or even grab the goalkeeper so you're not just shooting into an o- open net. You're right. Or even some of those skill like skill challenges that you see on see on FIFA. Um, cross was it crossbar challenge? Yeah, yeah. It's it. You know, it's aiming for the crossbar in the game, but it's it's a good challenge. People have fun. People get competitive and there's. I think as long as he gets some competitiveness going, it makes for a good environment. I think it opens you up to like creating challenges too. So like the, when you said crossbar challenges, like cool, what else could we target? I'm like, what if we yeah. had to go around the world on the poles? What if we set up water bottles and you had to almost like people practice with like beanie guns in the backyard? Like, can we do that with water bottles along like the line of the goals? Like anything I guess to try and target in and make it seem fun. And like underneath all of those layers, they're actually learning something. Well, they always don't realize it. Like we got to do so many things with so many sports. Like we serve into wheelie bins and volleyball, like yeah. anything. And like, that was so fun, even though it was so rudimentary. Yeah. If I then had to serve for no reason, just to the other side, so the person on the other side could serve to me, I'd be bored shitless. But I've just done 50 serves to try and hit that damn bin. Like it's just one little thing. You completely change the way you see an activity. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's... A lot of it too is that's the experimental time as well. Like you see a lot of it, like for me in football, I see a lot of videos where players will hit nice, clean, grass-cutted balls that are low, they spin, and it just looks phenomenal. <laughs> and that's the time where me, me and the coaches will get in beforehand and just see how low and hard we can ping, ping the ball. And when it comes off, the scenes. <laughs> it, it looks phenomenal. Yeah. It's just a bunch of coaches running around like they just scored a goal in a World Cup. Like, <laughs> we don't play as often anymore, so whatever time we do get to kick kick about and pull off some uh, mad, mad tricks, 
We'll take it. I can still do it as well. <laughs> if it wasn't for my injuries. If <laughs> I didn't feel like an old man, I would still be playing right now. <laughs> uh, no, even. No, yeah. I tell you, tell you I, saw, I got into social soccer again. Oh, that sounds like a terrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just there coaching. Nah, no, not even. No, it's just, it always reminds me as a coach, sort of what things that I, as a, as a player, I need to pay attention to, whether it be how much pressure is being applied, the space in between, what who my target players are. Like if I can hit my striker before or I can play, play around with my goalkeeper, I'll, I'll do it sort of thing. If there's space in behind because the defensive line's too up, I'll try ping those balls in behind. It's a small, small size field, but there's less running. That's <laughs> so good. Yeah, with your depth, it'd be like five steps to the other end of the field. <laughs> Mate, makes up because I can't cover long, long, long uh, bouts of distance. <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, no one who else has ever played social football has probably had any of those thoughts as well. Like, I'm sitting there trying to make sure I'm in line with defense. Defense is just a bloke who's here because he wants to have a drink afterwards and you, like, it's not a full line and you got it. It's just two people being, like, on the last line at the bed. <laughs> yeah. yeah but, and I'd be thinking to myself, if I wasn't a coach, what sort of thoughts would I be th- focusing on and thinking about as a player? Would I just, what would I be doing? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Would I be, be driving with the ball and trying to take on players all the time? Maybe. Probably. Probably. <laughs> but that requires too much running on my own. I'm dying. I can't run. <laughs> I've, got, I've got my 20 by 20 metre box that I stand in. This is me. This is me. <laughs> this is where I ping balls. <laughs> it's the ball feeding machine, essentially. So you don't have to run. <laughs> Strategically placing the next person who's willing to run instead of actually doing it yourself. Yeah. But that's some, again, one of the other things that... When I was messaging you there the other day, I was thinking about it. It's just how long seasons are. Like, we start in January, finish pretty much late October, early November. Probably you'll get some players that'll do individual coaching during the December holidays, back in it till January. Part of me is like, geez, parents, parents must be either very dedicated or sick to death, but... I know as, as coaches, by the last couple of weeks, well, months really, as, as, you, as you know, with me speaking to you, is it can just be so energy sapping. Yeah. yeah. Especially if you don't feel like the players are getting a lot from it because, like, we, as you know, we didn't have the best season. Injuries, players leave, um, different players come in from the level below the uh, age below. So it's it, the team that started at the start of January to, compared to the team that finished at the end looked completely different. Yeah. And again, when you're not wi- winning, and I'm not saying winning's ev- everything, like, but to go a season lose, losing nine, nine out of 10 games, you can say you shouldn't focus on winning as much, but for a kid, or for anyone really, that pissed me off. I was trying to use the, the, the cat is dying analogy. Yeah, the cat's, the, the cat's dying. Yeah. I tried to explain it to somebody uh, else. And I yeah. For those listening, how yeah, would you explain it to them? 
<laughs> it was kind of like when you rock up to a training session after a game on the weekend and the mood feels like something has died, but it's not as serious as like a family member or something. It's kind of like you have pets on life support. And so you're like sad about it, but like it's not dire. And then, <laughs> and then it just kept on getting progressively worse. There was a stage where the cat got better. Right. Got better. Yeah. It was like the cat's in a coma, it's recovering, but it's kind of sad. Cat's on life support. We're trying to decide whether or not it's worth keeping it on life support or just like flicking the switch. At least like metaphorical. And like yeah. the whole time though, it made sense. Like you can always, as someone who was like, you know, 1500 kilometers away, I could still know what the vibe at training was like and still know what the other coaches' faces looked like, just based off this cat dying analogy. Yeah. <laughs> low, low, low energy because as coaches, like naturally you love the game. You put everything into the session plans and when you've got players who really, I guess, not don't want to be there, but feel like they're going through the motions, waiting for the weekend to lose again, it takes the energy out of ev everyone around. So then as a coach, you got to think about... I've got to keep. I've got to give an extra amount of energy here to try and bring the level up a bit. Yeah. Um, but doing that for trying to do that for four or five months at the yeah. at the end of the season, you you start to run out of ideas. And it's like it's not for a lack of creativity, it's no. for a lack of intention. Like there's nothing in your training that can actually prepare you for those moments. Yeah. And you can. You can try every trick in the book. Like I heard this amazing story from a friend of mine who was saying that they, um, instead of paying attention to what was happening in the game, especially nowadays, like kids cricket isn't scored, like live scored or anything like that. There's no winner or loser technically. Yeah. And so like you can kind of make your own points up. And so if you do that, you can always play a mini competition with the team based on how many runs they can get in a game. Yeah. Completely independent of what the other team was doing, and so there was this really fun rule where they wanted to run more twos because they realised that kids aren't going to run you out, especially like young children. They're gonna, they're not going to hit the stumps in the fall. Might as well take a two instead of a single and see what happens. But the non-striker who would call through for the second would be the one who gets the run. Yes. Yeah. And so they go and hit it, and the other kid would be like, "Yeah, two, two, two." He's like, "Oh, I want the runs," and the other team's like, "What?" It goes to two to your name. He's like, yeah, but he gets 10 points. Like, <laughs> the mid game. And so they come off, they do the team huddle and be like, we've scored 1,862 points today. And the other team is like, what is happening? Like, what are they on about? <laughs> and they're just, they're playing their own competition within like this competitive structure of cricket because they just come up with these like really clear goals that the kids wanted to do that they were invested in. Yeah. Like, and that's the key, key point, the key word that the kids wanted to do that. Is that ownership and autonomy over their learning. And that's, that's a great way for teams that are, aren't doing well on the school board. What can you focus that's develop, developmentally friendly for them? What's a development goal? Um, whether that's an individual challenge or whether that's a, team, a collective team challenge. Um, and that, that can be your barometer of success, which I've, I've used in teams, teams in the past. Yeah. Um, but again, when, at the end of the season, when they come to a game and they're getting, getting whacked by five nil, developmental goals go, go out the window. 
I think people forget that self-determination theory is a motivational area, right? It's supposed to be like, how do I make someone intrinsically motivated? How do they want to take control of this? Exactly. I remember at one point you did try that, right? Like you tried to just give them more autonomy over training because you're like, there are three components, right? Yeah. Autonomy, relatedness, and competence. And so you got really tired of the autonomy because I think most people think that that's the biggest domino. Like when that one falls, the rest of them kind of go into play. So at least like we spend a lot more time. But it didn't work, did it? Like you tried to give them ownership over training and they just did not respond at all. Yeah, it is. Again, the cat, the cat was not feeling great. Yes. The pulse is just slowly dying. Because <laughs> uh, when, when, when I say that's all working, you ask, go and ask the players. And whether they give you the, the, they're giving you a genuine answer or whether it's the answer you want to hear as a coach is something completely different. But again, whenever I had those, those individual conversations, players are like, I will, you can see that from the goals that we've set, developmental goals that we've set, we're actually improving. Like, for you guys, you wanted to see how many times you could get 10 passes in a row. That number has increased. But you're still losing on the, on the, the overarching scoreboard. And that's, again, what they focus on. Yeah. And, and, that's, and again, that was the feedback is that, yeah, we know we're improving. And we can see that we're doing things that are to the game model and where we want to be, it's just so annoying that we're still getting getting whacked at the end of it. So that over a sustained period of time for 15-year-olds takes a toll. Yeah. And then, which is, again, why we had a lot of players leave, I, I believe. Yeah. Um, they've got friends in other clubs they want to play with. They... They're not gonna lose nine out of ten games, um, and it's it just seemed like a a way out of of their situation. I know you guys spend a lot of time analysing games as well, like probably similar PA to what state teams have in high performance systems, because it's so much time. And most sessions actually started with footage analysis as well. Yeah. How come you can do all that? Because still, like, there's even free Canada. I don't know, mate. <laughs> it's that me just being a shit coach. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad you're only me. Yeah, no, it's when, but again, for me, I feel like coaches need to go through that sort of process mm. to lose more games than you win because. Lose winning covers a lot of problems, and when you when you lose, as a coach, you start to get more creative with what your solutions are. Yeah. Um, minus trying to throw throw stuff around and seeing what sticks. Like that, it's just because you work on something during dif- work on something different during one week doesn't work on the weekends. Well, there's no use to saying, okay, let's try something else the next week. It, yeah. There needs to be a level of focus and attention that's drawn on that solution. And so the, the one thing when we see, when I saw players that were losing motivation and 
didn't really want to take ownership of the training session and, and drive it themselves, that's when we, we became more aware as a coaching staff that we need to step in here. We need to try something different. Um, we need to probably try drills that give them more success. And that's where we started doing a lot of lower representative practices. Yeah. Like sh passing patterns, shooting. Um, not exactly to the extent where we put cones and mannequins, say A to B, B to C. Like there's still pressure and and bodies in the way for players to attune to and move around. But we scaled the level of pressure back so that success was a lot more often than failure. Yeah. Yeah, you can always like crack load it to be like, okay, then give you as much success as we can in simple environments, even better about yourself and demonstrate your fault the best before we actually get back to a zone where your ratings would be a little bit more challenged. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But again, does looking back on it, does that affect the players at the end of the week? They go through that, they get the confidence back. By Friday, you're playing small-sided game. They're having fun. Then as a team, they lose on the weekend. And, oh, we're back back to square one again. Yeah, it's it's it was an interesting time. And so, I, as a coach, I. I still don't know what may have worked. I don't. I don't even know if there was one thing that could have worked. Maybe there was. Could have been a collection of things that we could have done better earlier on. But when you have injuries to long-term injuries to your two best players and other players of a very good level that leave the team mid to late in the season, it makes it hard, um, I feel. Yeah. But again, I'm the first one to look at my look at myself and what could I have done better because it's, as coaches, it's an easy cop-out to say, well, it's a player's, player's fault. But I'm the first one to reflect with, with my coaching stuff and be like, well, what could, what could we have done better? Do you feel like, even though this didn't work for this week, do you think if we stuck with it for the next couple of weeks... It could come come good, um, and yeah, I don't have the exact answers for that. But again, it's it's a good part of the learning process. I I pick up on two things there. The first one was around the creativity piece, like losing makes you more creative. I think that's only true for self aware coaches who are aligned to something. So I actually think it's the opposite when coaches lose too much. They drill down on the most controllable thing they can possibly think of. And it becomes this like reversal practice of like, if I get you to make the right shapes, those shapes will be so drilled into your brain that you will make those shapes when it counts. Whereas we're almost the opposite. We're like, okay, well, this didn't work. So we're in this like endless landscape of stuff to do. Is it if it's not here, right? Like, which is kind of funny because I actually think that's the opposite of what most coaches would do. And so I'm curious how many of those kids will come back as a result of like a shit season, like the kind of season that makes you question whether or not you want to play the goddamn sport anymore. Yeah. If remaining open in that context made a difference compared to drilling them down 
Yeah. Because you were willing to give up control of that scenario, you're like on the channels and this isn't working. So something's got to, right? Like let's look over here instead of keep looking in the same place. Yeah. The other was around like, I think it's my fault or at least I'm the first one to look at myself as a coach. And he's so ready to you all. No, I guess obviously the players. Oh, player A can't do this. Really? Because my first thought is, oh shit, I haven't actually exposed them to a, a good problem where they can find a solution for that. That's my fault. I should have thought of a better activity to yeah. give them the space to learn so that when it does happen in game day, I'm the one who allowed that to happen because they'd been here before. And that was like my only metric as a coach. I never want someone to stand on a field and be like, I've never been here before. Or I have no bloody idea how to solve things. Like, cause I felt like that. And I never wanted to be like that again. And so many coaches who let me down. I was like, I never want a kid to be like, oh God, I have no idea right now. No, you have so many solutions to any of these bit. And if not, I'm back you to just work it out anyway. If you don't know that in the moment, then you've got a shit coach in it. Uh, that's, that's it. It's like, like you said, how many problems are they actually solving and trading? Like, the we, yeah, the, we know that the game's chaotic and research and literature tells you that the more, more chaos in your training sessions, that should transfer over, over a long period of time. Yeah. But I still feel and this is probably the myth in ecological dynamics and probably you can help unpack a little bit is that don't let that don't let that let the game be the teacher don't let that saying affect what you do as a coach in terms of stepping back and just letting kids play and see what they do there is still a role for the coach and in the research papers come, coming out, they pitch the coach as a learning designer, um, a problem setter. So the, I guess of your value as a coach is how well can you set up problems that push and challenge players, but still give them a level of success so that when they do get into the game on the weekends, they feel confident in knowing that we've solved similar situations and it's it's a transferable process. So whether, whether that, and that doesn't always necessarily need to be in a 11 v 11 game. You can solve transferable problems in a 3 v 3 and a 4 v 4 setting as you would in an 8, 8 v 8. Like getting to, the one that comes to mind is if you've got, three players who are sitting in their own half protecting the goal the three see the three players who are trying to score need to need to try and disorganize that defensive block and try and pull them out and try to think of ways of how they can how they can get through that essentially because if they're just going to sit it's going to be very hard um so they didn't realize that's probably not the time to keep possess keep possession all the time we need to take start taking risks we need to try different things, drive at players, see, if, see who we can isolate. Can we create 2v1s? Yeah. Try different things. Um, and then on the flip side of that, how do we deal with just keeping the ball under pressure when defending the opposition of defending man-to-man? Um, are those players being exposed to those two different scenarios? So, and if you can tick 
tick yes to both those on those situations on the weekend you can be confident that if you did that over a long period of time they'd probably be better off than what they were at the start of the season yeah I always really love Russell Earnshaw's stories around like how to help people identify what the tactics of somebody else is so in a training session they'll often give like bonus points and power-ups to people who can identify what the tactic of their opposition is so that defense one in particular all that was happening in my mind I was like okay if they did that intentionally as a, a tactical defensive move, we're going to sit here, we're going to essentially park the pass and make sure no one gets past us. That's cool. But if the, if the attacking team's like, I know what they're doing, then maybe they're not allowed to use that tactic for a minute. Every time you, you form up like that again, that immediately gang pauses, find a new position. Like, oh, we just take you out. I'm like, you three are, are subbed off. Yeah. Now, now what? You're like, oh shit! I have to come up with a different defensive move to to respond to the same attacking situation. What do I do? And so, like that ability to identify what's happening, respond to the attack in different ways, like that's something that makes so much sense in my mind, even as a non-football coach. But I guess nobody else would ever really think of unless they had a very similar approach to what we do. I remember hearing Russell Hershaw talk about the the magic cards that he, he pulls, pulls out and just how effective they are. Like, you don't need to go online and purchase them, um, I, I suppose, if you don't want to fork out the money, but you can create your own. Um, it, again, comes back to the creativity of the coach. Like, how well do you know the game and how well can you simplify it and transfer it? And exact, exactly like that, those... Those cards that he uses, whether it task challenge, a team challenge, or an individual challenge, they've it's it gives players so much value, and it and it makes it fun serving for them to, I guess, have that level of autonomy and pick in picking the card. Yeah, it makes them feel like, yeah, it's my problem to solve. Yeah, um, and I feel like they're more likely to fire in and commit to solve yeah i think it makes a big difference when you own that problem too so not only is it my problem to solve but i am a problem solver yeah like i don't think we can force that moment like we can set as many problems as we want as coaches and expose people to those environments but until the players themselves are like i can solve this problem i am a problem solver like i can't give you that title you have to bestow it upon yourself and like i it's my job to kind of keep pushing you to the point where you believe that and then still give you enough success that you don't quit. And it's me, good news, it's a fine line. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. It's, you take a lot from video games and how hard they're designed. So, well, starts easy, go through the levels, becomes harder, and they're more, well, people more intrinsically motivated to to keep pushing, keep pushing on to it get some mad bit of gear or some sick weapon or whatever whatever it is. Yeah. Um, be the final boss, whatever it is. So that's when I think coaching, the, from what I've seen in the last year or so, there's a lot more research and a lot more content that's being put out around video game design. Yeah. And really how to bring that to life in training. Um, and again, it doesn't, you don't need to think of a, think of a whole set, whole session of some um, different video games and well um well designed practices that link straight to superpowers and 
cheats and different levels. Um, just I tried it; it was hard. You know, slide deck. Yeah, we have. Yeah, holds. Oh, slide deck of it. But you, as a coach, tr just trying it out for the first time, you pick the lowest hanging fruit. Yeah. So if there, there's this, a uh, well, a well designed constraint where a player scores a goal they get a special bib and if they score you get two points and again it's stuff that a lot of coaches already use it's they're just not aware that it's video gaming but it's the stuff that's all very impactful and gets the players coming back again mm. when you said that the special bib all i could think of is the invincibility star like music like it's like, oh my God, <laughs> just immediately. And that's the hard thing, right? It's like, for us, it makes so much sense. And it's like right there in front of you. And the other people was like, I have no idea how you came to that conclusion, which I find hilarious because I couldn't tell you how I got to this point. <laughs> like, yeah. I always use Hollow Knight as an example of a video game that has made me miss the mark on the difficulty thing. Because I remember watching my brother on the TV, just sitting there trying to jump from level to level, completely lost. Had no idea where he was in the map. And then accidentally fell down or like got killed and respawned like probably 40 minutes away from where he did end up and had no idea how he got there. It's like, how the hell am I supposed to get back to this place that I know I need to get to when like there is no map, but when I can't find what level I jumped to or what wall I walked through, like, what do I do from now? I was like, that's what we don't want. That's the kind of video game moment that we need to design out of our training sessions. And we need to like have almost like spawn points at the right time so we can keep coming back to this is where we're going to find success. This is the problem we're going to try and solve. Like I joked about save, save files the other day. Yeah. I was like, coaching is actually technically just like making progress in game and then saving the file at the end of a training session and then coming back. So no one wants to go back to level one. Exactly. And so, and then but I also get to pick like what I want my difficulty to be like how hard are my enemies going to be etc that autonomy is great and I, I think we do that pretty well in coaching but that sort of safe file mentality of like how do I come back to this point and start here treat them as if they're here and then I want to go back if they're not quite ready or haven't kept it or move forward if they're already getting it and we can move to the next level I don't think we do that very well and especially if your creativity is just chopping and changing what you do every week but it has to be a threat. Otherwise, they're going to think that they loaded the wrong game. Yeah. I'll give you a good example too. Is At, at our club, we, we use the Rondos a lot. Yeah. And see if you would have heard me talk about this. So um, at, the, at the start of the year, it's get, players in, get players going. You use the five by five meter square. One attacker and defender in the middle and four bounces on, on the outside sort of thing. And it, it it serves a purpose, yes. Yeah. But when I see coaches do the same thing as they did it in January, as they do in September, I guess so in order. That's yeah. I'm like sure, surely you you can progress this. So uh, whether it's to be whether it be directional whether it be more chaotic. So it's not just like a five, five by five meter square and one, one V one in the middle. So by, by the end, I had my Rondos was three, three, four different teams. 
and it was and it was directional. Okay, so it um, they had to move the ball or hit certain target players to unlock the next zone. So there's that challenge point. Yeah. So either can we can we find the middle player first? So which links to finding finding a midfielder. Yeah. Um, can we find the middle player first to then play someone on the outside who can switch across, or can we find the I guess the bouncer in between the two squares, which acts as a strike, like say a striker. Yeah. Um, who can then bounce the widest players, who can then play the highest, yeah. play through. So just adding adding more complexity for players um, just keeps it more interesting for them, and they they do need to fail a number of times in that. Because when they finally do see that they're getting success or that they pull off a sequence that's like five between five players, one touch, bang, 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 straight through. They they go off off their chops. There are scenes when when they play it off. So there does need to be a level of progression there. And when you were saying that, Rondo's were the classic example for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it doesn't have to be completely different, right? Like you absolutely take something that you know and love. And make it one percent different, one percent more complex. A quote that I heard recently was like, "There's a difference between complexity and complicated. Sometimes we overcomplicate things because it makes us sound smart, and we don't want people to be able to follow along because maybe our logic is flawed. But complexity is quite intentional. Like you kind of need to know what the moving parts are, even if you can't control them. You have an idea of what they are, and you can intentionally design those." And you can make sure that when people know what they're coming to, they're signing up for something that's complex and difficult. And maybe you're going to take a few times before you get it right. And if you preface that, like, you always get away with any training. Like, especially if the people you're working with are ready, you can do challenges you didn't think were possible. Or they come up with things that you didn't know were possible. Although you didn't think they could do, but they think they're close enough to get away with. And if we keep doing complicated things for the sake of it, just to make it look like we're coaching, instead of maintaining the complexity that people are ready for, and maybe 1% more than they think they're ready for, it completely changes the game. Yeah. And the one, to me, the one thing looking, well, one of the things looking back on the season is just the realisation of how much of a spectrum coaching is. And start, starting off on my journey, my coaching journey eight, eight, nine or so years ago, coming out of university, I was very Q&A based, um, asking players questions. And then last probably two years, um, one, of, one of our technical directors there challenged me to be the opposite. Um, again, because player players weren't getting a lot of success. They needed needed me to be more specific um, and a bit more energetic. So I didn't get exposed to the other side of the other side of the spectrum, which is for me as a coach was a great development experience. Um, and, it, and it was uncomfortable for me to go to players and say, come on, I need, I need you to be here when this happens. I get because that's I guess that's not really how how research is going. It's 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 a balancing act. And that's 
that's what well I think at the end of the season there is it's depending on your intention and how much intentionality is a big thing in coaching so we don't need as a coach I don't need to be heavily Q&A based uh, and asking players questions and giving them problems the day after a match that's that's potentially a time where set up something fun let players those players go let them experience success do the technical stuff um, but when perhaps when it's middle middle of the week where they've got a lot more energy to burn uh, less risk of injury that's when we can do do the heavy heavy problem solving that's when we can get a little bit more chaotic that's when we can get messy and solve a lot more problems I suppose so there needs to be a balance there you can't be one side of the spectrum all the time it's like this the picture of a seesaw just came into my mind then can't get, can't be one or the other because it just tip it just tips so you got you got to find a middle ground and to add another layer of complexity on top of that you've got you're dealing with individuals who are at different stages of their learning journey as a player some players may want you to be that I guess that drill sergeant that player to set the, uh, that coach to set the standards tell them what they need to do um, so then they can go out and try it others are looking for you to push them and give them challenges to help them solve because the challenge that the rest of the group are going through is fairly easy for them so what how can you be more creative as a coach to set that player who's doing doing very well that extra challenge to keep pushing him higher yeah um yeah <laughs> okay so next thing i want to ask you was how do you think you have changed as a coach over the past five five years or so granted, granted you haven't been doing too much coaching as of as of late but how, how do you think your stance or how you coach has changed so that's a funny question because like I started coaching at like 15, 16 and I didn't have the language and the backing to do what I do now, but it was always quite consistent. So I have this like core memory of a parent grabbing a kid's arm in uh, Milo cricket and being like, you need a bowl with a straight arm. He has how to do it by the wrist, stand up like this. And I was like, that can't be legal. Like, you can't... How are you allowed to touch child, first of all? I used to say you didn't do the same thing. No. <laughs> but it was just like that moment, I was like, wait a second, like, coaches have way too much power here. You're allowed to do that. I don't care if that was the parent of the child or not. In no world in my mind is that okay. And I would like to think that I'm treated with more respect than that. And so that kind of started this, like, domino effect of, like, okay, why do we think that children are stupid? If we simultaneously treat them as many adults. And then, of course, like, if they're taking too long to learn, why do you think that's the child's fault if you're supposed to know better as an adult? Maybe you're just not a very good coach. At, at 15, I was at, you can imagine what kind of athlete I was. Oh, my God. Everyone hated me because I was always like that. And so when I finally got to university and sat in that first mode control and learning club, when we were doing information processing, that was the first time I was like, you know, just, just no. 
<laughs> this can't be it. Like, this is not, surely this is not how the world works. And so that next day I went back to training and I could just see all of those assumptions in the way that people were interacting with other people that I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is definitely the norm. Yeah. Like I actually really careful. And then I went from being really careful about like, screw everyone else. I'm going to coach the way I coach. Cause as it turns out, kids quite enjoy coming to training when I'm the coach. So I'm just going to stick with this and I don't care what anyone else says. Until I had a conversation with a tech, like a director of coaching who was like, I'm not sure we're going to let you coach this team because people don't quite get what you can do. And I was like, how dare you? My kids can't wait for me to get in training. Are you kidding? Like, why is it important? Why is it the way that I'm perceived is important? Why can't I just lie on the sideline? my hat over my head pretending to sunbakes but kids can't come to me and be like what do I do this what do I do I don't know you do know I know you know we've been here before you don't need me I'm, I'm over here chilling in the sun like I don't care I'm scoring like I'm doing literally anything other than being the coach right now because you don't need me but I didn't do a very good job of like breaking that in gently so I always went from like the kid who knew nothing, the kid who thought she knew everything. And even if it aligned with the research, nobody cared. So like, even if I wanted to use that as backup, it meant nothing in the currency of the real world of what coaching is. And so then I had to take a step back and be like, okay, maybe people, everyone's just trying to do their best. That's what we're here to do. That's what coaching is. If we're all trying to do our best, maybe it's not worth judging people based on their training design, because if that's all they know, then I can't really hold that against them. It's not doing harm as long as they are trying to do their best for these people. And then more recently, kind of in the last year, I said, well, actually taking people's opportunities away from them in intentionally or unintentionally is doing harm. If we are telling people that the only way that they are allowed to exist in our sport is this big, is one meter by one meter square that we deemed necessary or acceptable in a sport, socially or otherwise, that is doing it. Because we will now have people who will never explore the boundaries of their capabilities because we took that away. So we almost flipped, like it's just in this like roller coaster of like, this can't be right. We're just doing their best. They're not doing any harm. Oh, but we actually are doing harm by yeah. doing this. And so it's just been this never ending cycle of like fleet flooding between like people are trying, we're not trying hard enough. Oh, they're, they're doing their best, but it's still causing harm. Like I shouldn't have to tell kids about, you know, suicide prevention when then when I'm coaching 15 year old boys, like it's just, how can you say that's not doing harm? Yeah. So I think for me, this experience of coaching and, and why I've always wanted to kind of stay as a coach, regardless of what I do has meant that like I've, I know I had a unique path cause I was always like, what does someone else say about this? How do I bring that in? What do the research say? What does the literature say? What are other people's experiences? Yeah. But at the same time, at the heart of it, I've always known that like, I am not the most important person in a coaching environment. My job is to be here and shield for these people who have exposed themselves to the world just because they decided that they want to have fun playing sport and our systems say no. Yeah. Out. The one important aspect that you mentioned there was no one goes in with the intention of putting on a bad session or be, being a bad coach. Yeah, coaches generally, A, love the sport that they coach and B, 
try try to do it in a way that they see they de- deem as best. So and then then you, you take a step back as a coach educator, for example, and say if you start with that and so think, okay, what influences or what Im- impacts or what resources are available to them that impact on the way that they coach, the way, way that they deliver sessions. Yeah. And when when I think of my coaching journey too, a lot of it was ve- is very self di- self directed, mm. wanting to know as much as detail as I can about the game, because I was a, a high level player or anything like that. Loved the sport, played, definitely played. Wasn't a high level player or anything, but to do as much research and look at the tactical stuff from, I guess, a coach's perspective is something that initially I placed a lot of emphasis on. And then as I went through through my master's and my university degree um, as a PE teacher, you realize it's not about what you know. Whilst that is important, it's about how it's delivered and what what are the players picking up on, essentially. So it's yeah, a pedagogy. Yeah. yeah, the pedagogy is is a, is just as important as what you know and what you what you deliver. I suppose I uh, I pulled a face halfway through there, not because of what you said, but because I realised that coaching is just a really bad love language. <laughs> Like, it's just a really ineffective love language. <laughs> if you really think about it, like, it's just... <laughs> I just had that thought as you were talking. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God. Everyone goes in with best intentions. And that's the thing. So, like, and it's been a huge push more recently around, like, the self-awareness part of it, right? So, um, a lot of the guys that, like, movement sports, so Simon Turner and Alan Keane speak a lot about, like, their approach to coach education is actually just by making the coach aware of what they're really doing. And we've got even more research to support the fact that coaches don't know what they're doing. Where I mean, they looked at the coaching styles um, and teaching styles and <laughs> that, what a coach thought that they were doing. And then an observational analysis of the actual tasks that they were doing were completely opposite. But they were hell bent that they were actually being supportive and not directed. And then spent 40 minutes yelling at them. Like, that's an extreme example, but also an example I've absolutely seen in real life. So I don't know how you can put your eggs in one basket and say, I am over here as a coach. Look at me. This is what I do. I'm modern. And then completely write an entire session plan. It's the exact opposite of that and then still genuinely believe it. So I think so much of coaching has an identity crisis because we're not aware of what we're doing. And I think it's a dangerous, dangerous Pandora box to open because now the first thing we do when we have technology film things right we analyze and add themes and stuff like that i don't want that to translate back to the athletes so this is probably one of the few elements of like coach development and education that isn't actually supposed to go all the way to what the athletes are doing i don't want don't need to film athletes to be able to build self-awareness but for the coaches like they're so far behind or what they think they're doing yeah maybe we need to implement that there yeah and to to progress as a coach, you need you need to a be self self aware, uh, yeah, and you need to leave your ego at the door a little bit as well, and be open to conversations with people that 
probably have a different perspective of what co- coaching is mm-hmm. um, and doesn't necessarily need to be within your chosen sport either. Well, right. It's better if it's not, I think. Better, better if it's not, yeah. yeah. It, it ex- co- talking to coaches in your own sport ex- has potentially many blind spots to to that. Whereas if you're coach, coaching it, or talking to someone in rugby or to, well, for me, being being a footballer, cricket, um, something that's completely opposite, but the elements and the principles of a training session can be can be transferable to things. From from the point of, for ex- for example, what do you do as a cricket player, as a cricketer, for warm up? I've seen cricket. I've seen cricketers throw around and play touch footy. Yeah, for their for their warm up. Much to the detriment of their ACLs. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Um, and again, like, what? How how is the coach delivering their training session? Are they are they pulling players off one on one for a chat? Are they giving giving them challenges? Are are they being more directives? When are they being more directive? Those those are the sort of, sorts of things that. If you leave your ego at the door as a coach and be open to those type of conversations, and and then I guess have the have the courage and conviction to try new things and implement it, you'll do you'll go a lot further than you would thinking I'm the one here who's doing the most work. I'm watching the most football games. Mm. Therefore, I'm the one who who needs to impart my knowledge onto onto the players or even try to convince other coaches that your your way is the way to go because i know that within our coaching staff the way i see football is very different to how others see football and and vice versa i don't think too many people see football or sport in that matter yeah the exact the exact same way i don't think well i don't think anyone does they pay attention to different things. So as a collective staff, then it's important that you have those different differing opinions. But again, for the players, you need to be united as as a as a staff. You need to have the same same sort of ideas and come across um, in the same manner. Debate all you want outside and before or after. before before and after and challenge each other's views but when players see hear two different things that's when inconsistencies um occur and that's when other coaches feel undermined which is not useful to anyone no exactly yeah i love using the phrase that i'm a reformed expert I always wanted to start a presentation like that. I'm a reformed expert. I'm sorry <laughs> for the brief moment that I ever believed for that I could be an expert. But even that alone is like, it's such an easy way to leave your ego at the door when you actually realize that you don't know anything. And I don't know anything about the person in front of me. So why would I be able to tell you what to do? What gives me the right, aside from being loud enough? And what classifies as an expert to you? Do you need to be in the sport for, te- or coaching the sport for ten plus years? Do you need to watch a hundred or so plus plus games? Do you need to have played played at a professional level? Do you need 
do you need a pro license? Yeah. Like, there's, I don't think there's any real way of knowing what an expert, expert is except for probably experience. Yeah. I suppose. And then even experience doesn't equal development. Exactly. You can absolutely have a mountain of experience and not have learned anything along the way unless you really consciously made the effort to reflect and iterate and go through that process with yourself and hopefully with people who encourage you to do that. But like you can have 20 years and be the exact same coach you started. And to me, that is sad. Yeah. Like I don't want someone if they, if I coached someone as a child and they came up to me now, we ran a training session. I would like to think it's different because they're different. I'm different. And what they need right now is different. Like I can't be the same coach. No. And again, stressing the importance of coaches having a, refre- a reflective practice and not just sitting in the car on the, on the way home, just thinking to themselves of, um, well, I could have done better then. Um, for those who, who are listening, that's why I call, call Alex after each, each training sessions. Good. Because I know if I wrote it down on pen and, pen and paper by the time I got home, I, I would have forgotten. So yeah, I use Alex as my reminder of where where I have been and where I'm going, where I'm going to. Which is kind of cool because like we ha- we stopped writing them down. Like I used to transcribe them, and then I got to talk about the third or fourth one. I was like, this is pointless because I can almost rem- every time we sit on a phone call, I now remember whether or not like this topic has come up before just by talking about it. And there's been a few times already where we're like, oh, you would, that's not how you would have assessed this situation a year ago. Like, and that's already changed just in conversation. Like, yeah, yeah it'd be cool if we wrote that down, but what value was that? Like, me, yeah, me saying that that's changed. You're like, oh, it actually has. Like, yeah. I feel like I never would have even noticed that in the first place. It's oh, the same thing, with same thing coaches do to players, should, well, should do more to players, is highlighting the things that they, they've done done well. Yeah. Hey, I, I remember at the start of, start of the season, you didn't have the confidence to take more than one one player on in a 1v1 situation. And now you're looking to see if you can beat, can beat the second defender, beat your first player and then beat the second player as well. Like, they're, they're played. Yeah. That, that shows the Dolan. So... We'll do that for ourselves. That, yeah. High, highlighting as coaches what... What you've done well, what you could do better, how you can do it better, and then at the end of the season or halfway through the season, think back and call, think back on how how have I changed? What what have I changed as a coach? Whether that be within myself and how I deliver a session, or something that's practice wise, um, and in my session design, I think that's that shows shows growth. Yeah. I think we, um, it almost, it would be interesting to see it written down, but I don't think you'd actually capture it. Because just like athlete development and skill development is for moments that may or may not appear in these chaotic games that we play. I feel like so much of coach development is just like a split second moment that you respond to and you're not quite sure how you're going to do it until it happens. So like there's been a few times in my coaching where I would sit there and get really frustrated that something wasn't happening. And more recently, I've been able to kind of step back and be like, I wonder why that's happening, not, oh, I need to fix this. Because this is like a gut feeling. It's just like, oh, I've done this wrong. Yeah. I need to now make it better. Like, no way I say, I wonder what it is in like what I said or what I did or where I put these cones down that could have suggested that this is 
viable option. And sometimes now I'll just be like, oh, how'd you do that? And just genuinely mean the question, like, how'd you do that? Like, that's not what I wanted. I don't actually have a version that I want anymore. And it took me a while to realize that so many of my questions were based on, like, I think this should have happened. You're not doing that. Now I just don't, I don't even know what's supposed to happen. I I'm genuinely want to know what can we do with these cones? Like, <laughs> you tell me, man. Like, I've run out of creative ideas at this point. Like, please test what I think is capable of happening in this environment. What can we do differently? Yeah. I, I love the question, what can't you do? I'm obsessed with this question at the moment. What can't you do? Like, and then can, can we change it so that you can do it? And so now we ask it again, what can't you do? I love being able to like fold both hands. Not very well, but like I could definitely like go off my left hand and lands on the pitch sometimes. Like, just cause I don't want people to be like, you can't do that. Watch me. <laughs> That's the only reason I would keep playing sports to be able to find that moment and be like, but I can't. It's another way I can solve a problem. Yeah. Imagine me I um, bowl with both hands. How good would that be? Yeah, I know. Jenna Vasney is my hero. Uh, <laughs> the advantage of growing on the Gators. <laughs> You'd be able to solve so many problems. So many problems. Problems you didn't even know existed until you actually unlocked that side. Yeah. And again, like we say, it's another level of video game life. Like, Yeah, that's it. It's, um, Again, being able to bowl both hands there makes me think of uh, we need players to dribble with both feet. Mm. Like, yes, yes, it's a, it's a nice to have. But I remember listening to a podcast the other day where it, uh, this coach said that a lot of the top-level players are right, right foot dominant and do very, very well just with their right foot. Like, yes, they can use their left foot, but they don't need they don't need to yeah. so should should coaches at a younger age which I suppose be harping on all the time about being able to use both feet maybe maybe not it depends it depends on the situation you're trying to solve yeah that's right and it depends on what you're trying to develop them for how many kids from your program are ever going to be good enough on their right foot to only ever need their right foot in a live performance adult composition 0.01%. Like, there is no chance that most of these kids will ever go past the level that they're playing at now. Well, if we do our job right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's my point. Like, yes, I'm sure it'd be great to be that good at something, but for the very fact they're not. So 0.02. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Really doubling your chances yeah, here. Yeah. But even then, like, I think it completely depends on what you think your job is in, like, youth school and development. Like, I want to be able to use both feet because you never know. Me being capable of that could open up a bunch of different things that I didn't think I was capable of doing. And me knowing that I can learn something like that, apply it in a different context, is really cool for human development, not just, like, skill development. So, like, yes, I, I want to be able, not because I ever think I'm going to go play for a state left-handed, but because I just want to be able to say that I can do it and, like, improve it. That's it. Yeah, it's to cool. me, that gets me off a chair and out doing something. It's more important for my own growth and development as a person than it is as an athlete. I think if we kind of shift that our job as coaches, especially in youth sport, even in the talent development pathways, I hate to break it to you, but most of them won't make it. The least we can do is help them be more capable human beings. And if that means being able to play on both feet and just being like, haha, in the park, I'm going to ruin you on both sides or I can play both positions. It's kind of fun. And that moment is something that we're going to be either responsible for giving them or responsible for taking away. 
and I would rather give it to them and see what happens than to take it away prematurely because like you don't need your left foot to play for Australia and the Sunbaroos. I don't actually care. I'm sorry, but like my world doesn't revolve around whether or not this kid's going to play for the Sunbaroos. I hate to break it to you. Yeah, even, even if I'm the under 15 state coach, I still don't think that's the most important part. Yeah. And I think like you said it before, that question of what, what can we do differently is so important. And it's just, it's, it's a low hanging fruit for not only coaches, but for players just to test their thinking, test their creativity and something that they can try to, for, for the next session. It's, it keeps them out of doing the norm all the time. And again, yeah, like I said, it tests, tests their thinking so that you're not always stuck in on a plateau in your learning journey yeah if it fails it fails but you've tried yeah tried to do us. so how do you do that as a coach then because i think that we forget that we're supposed to do that as coaches yeah like flint i i've taken taken a lot from teachers um one it's one of their pedagog pedagogical um but i guess yeah, one of their pedagogical approaches has been flipped classroom. Yeah. I, rem- I remember third third year uni in an education class, we, we did all the, all the work before actually entering the classroom. And I thought it was, actually, I thought it was pretty cool because we came, we came with the level of understanding that we then needed to apply in that classroom rather than starting from scratch, learning new, the new topic throughout the session then answering a quiz at the end. Yeah. So in in coaching, for example, whole part holes are good might might be one. And that's I'm seeing whole part hole used a lot more than what it has been. Um start with start with the game. Why do why do we need to start with rondos? Can can we just start with two two goals 40 metres apart and this uh, 7v7 for 15, 15 minutes or so. Yeah. And then just change, change the constraints. Play, play football bingo. Can we see team wins by scoring a header, a volley, first time finish and, oh no, a long range shot. Yeah. Yeah. Diverse ways, yeah. Yeah, di- diversified. He, what do you do in your games? Yes. And then, breaks like not not bring it, not strip it back, because if players are already doing it in this in the game, they're demonstrating to you that they that they're already at the level. So you don't need to go from level seven to level level two. Yeah. Like, but can you can you reduce? the chaos so that players get more repetition of what of what they're doing whether it be one-on-ones or shooting and the easiest way to do that is limit the number of proponents that they face in front of them so they they have more more goes to solve the problems in different ways yeah because they're going to touch a lot the ball a lot more times in a 2v 2v2 or 3v3 than they are going to be in a 77 and 88 so that's yeah, that's that's the one one thing I thought thought of in 
I guess, just try, trying to do things differently. And that's from a, that's from a session design perspective, from a, from a coaching perspective and how you, how you deliver one day, one day you might be, might be the positive possum, like just happy and energetic. Like you don't need to give all, all the technical uh, points that you associate coaching with. You don't need to give them tactics all the time. Just hype them up. Be the hype man. I, I remember watching um, this old NFL documentary. Um, oh, Alabama's uh, college football program and their strength and conditioning. I forget the name, his name, but uh, Nick Saban's strength and conditioning coach was an absolute loose unit. Like, he was the biggest hype man, and from like I just felt the energy from watching, watching him. It was just like shouting, shouting all the time, hyping players up. And I'm like, if I had that bloke, it like coaching me, there there'd be scenes when when we'd score a goal. Like, and so, be that coach one day, or and then save save your technical technical tactical coaching for another day like change up your delivery style again because i think too players get players get bored when you're you come across as the same person each time not to say you need to change who who you are or anything but just changing up your energy level change changing the information you give i think um just yeah just keeping it interesting for players yeah try to like there's an also that's between like consistency of knowing what you get when you're gonna get there but also like you don't want to be able to predict what's going to happen at training you want to know kind of vaguely like when you rock up as an athlete oh yeah. these are the expectations of what i kind of need to do here today but like there's so much that you can do within that space yeah that I think we just keep ourselves very small as coaches. Yeah, there's, and the one one thing I did I picked up from being um, being at the rule there was just how to stru- how to structure uh, the week at your week. So rather than your typical old oh, Monday, we're going to focus on on um, pass passing receiving. Thursday's our te- technical tactile session. Um, it's it was stripped back into types of days so mon- monday might have been rest and recover um to tuesday wednesday might have been hard line let's go um match day minus one confidence like so and that sort of gives you an indication of how you then need to turn up as a coach um to yeah match match day minus one be the be the hybrid um, match day plus one, take take a step back, get get it get involved get involved, um, have a have a joke around with the players, um, all, all that sort of thing. Um, middle middle of the week, time to go, time to be serious here. Yeah. So that that was something different that I hadn't really picked up on before, um, entering that environment. The if that rigid as everyone thinks, right? Like yeah. do quite have a bit of ownership of what the program looks like. And the, for the most part, I think people are really interested in making sure that 
it is the best program for the players involved, even if it sometimes doesn't look like that. Maybe it's just a lack of execution sometimes, but... Yeah. Ben's, again, comes down to, to the skill of the coach. Yeah. Ben's it. Yeah. Spends how they he operate. Because I haven't seen too many coaches coach and deliver a session the same way. Yeah. Which is probably a good thing, I think. Like, Yeah. I, I would hate to know exactly what coaches kind of do when I'm in a different context. Because I want them to surprise me. Like, that's why, yeah. Yeah. To learn something I didn't know. Have, have similar ideas. Have, have similar sort of sessions. Delivery and then what you say to players. Usually different. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's... Oh, that's throughout sport. Throughout is the delivery of, of coaches is different, no matter whether you play cricket, volleyball, yeah, wherever. But there are a lot of transferable elements between each. More than you think, right? More than you think. I always love it. Same problem as the different context. Exactly. And it's, it's actually like not, you're not special. No. <laughs> I, I hate to break it to you, but football's not special. Cricket is definitely not special. You still, at the end of the day, you've got, you've got a coach and you've got players or player if, you, if you're yeah. coach golf or swimming or something like that. He'll imagine having known one athlete. <laughs> it must be so weird. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting. <laughs> Can't relate. <laughs> so we didn't crush that. Yeah, that's a good one. Thanks for listening to the Deep End podcast. I hope this episode has left you with more questions than answers. Keep treading water in that deep end. We need coaches like you in this world. Mm-hmm.